You're listening to Enclave Community Church. For more information about Enclave, please visit us online at enclavecc.com. The scripture is Acts 5:33 to 42. When they heard this, they were enraged and wanted to kill them. But a Pharisee in the council named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law held in honor by all the people, stood up and gave orders to put the men outside for a little while. And he said to them, men of Israel, take care what you are about to do with these men. For before these days, Thutis rose up, claiming to be somebody, and a number of men, about 400, joined him. He was killed, and all who followed him were dispersed and came to nothing. And after him, Judas the Galilean rose up in the days of the census and drew away some of the people after him. He too perished, and all who followed him were scattered. So in the present case, I tell you, keep away from these men and let them alone. For if this plan or this undertaking is of man, it will fail. But if it is, if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. You might even be found opposing God. So they took his advice, and when they called in the apostles, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. Then they left the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that the Christ is Jesus. Dear Father, thank you for this wonderful Sunday morning we're gathered together, Father. Give us a spirit of humbleness and willingness to listen and learn what you would you would have us take away, Father, and just be with Andrew as he delivers your word to us. Father, we ask that you continue to watch over all of us. Thank you most of all for your son, Jesus, in his name, amen. Um, today, we're going to talk a little bit about uh, injustice and dishonor. And I think that most of us can probably think of examples of injustice where some people are suffering dishonor at the hands of other people, maybe without those other people even acknowledging what they're doing. Um, I was looking at an example of this in an article that I was given by Jacob. Thank you, Jacob, for that. Uh, regarding a man named Lamar Johnson. So I think we have a picture of Lamar Johnson up. Okay, <clears throat> Lamar Johnson was convicted of uh, murdering his friend Marcus Boyd in 1994. He was sentenced to life in prison without parole. But the one problem is, is that he didn't do it, right? And there is increasing evidence to show that he didn't do it. So, for example, um, he has an alibi that makes it almost impossible for him to be able to be at the crime scene. That's one thing that's going on. In addition to that, the eyewitness to the murder that happened kind of late in the evening, right, the one who had identified Lamar in a lineup later admitted that the police actually pressured him to choose Lamar when he wasn't certain at all who among the lineup was the killer, right? Now remember, it happened late in the evening, and in addition to that, it was two masked men. 
Then later, these two masked men came forward and confessed to the murder. And they even told who they confessed to that Lamar Johnson was not at fault at all, was not even present at the situation. And nevertheless, for years, decades even, the state of Missouri refused to have this retried and to admit that maybe, maybe they wrongfully convicted an innocent man. Now, we're going to get back to that story here in a little bit, but I, I just have that for you just so you can see some parallels between that story and the story that we're going to be uh, looking at today. So last time we were together, we were with the apostles, and the apostles, surrounded by the Sanhedrin, 70 people meeting together in this half circle, uh, plus the high priest, they were there in the middle being tried. Right? And the high priest was bringing accusations against them, namely two accusations, disobedience and malintent. They said, you did not obey our charge to stop preaching in Jesus' name, and you're doing it out of vengeance. You're trying to bring Jesus' blood guilt on us by preaching that God had overturned our sentence by raising him from the dead. Now, if you remember, the response of the apostles were to say, well, I, you know, I hear what you're saying, but you're still guilty. And God did reverse the wrongful, wrongful conviction and sentence that you placed on Jesus by raising him from the dead. And also, we're going to have to continue obeying God and not you guys. So what do you guys think? Like, do you think they were happy about that response from the apostles or not happy about that response from the apostles, right? No. What we find is in response to that, you know, their response to the high priest's accusations, what the apostles then experienced was further injustice, further dishonor. And so we're going to see that today. But I think what we'll also see today is that the apostles, because of their belief... In the death and resurrection of Jesus, it made a huge difference in how they experienced that injustice, in how they experienced that dishonor. So today I want to talk about how believing in the death and resurrection of Jesus can give us hope in the face of injustice and can give us joy and boldness in the face of dishonor. So that, that's how the sermon is sort of structured this morning. We're going to talk about hope in the face of injustice and joy and boldness in the face of dishonor. So let's first talk about hope in the face of injustice. Now, if we go back to Lamar Johnson, one of the interesting things uh, about him as he was being interviewed uh, regarding what was going on with his case is that he actually had hope that things would, would go better for him, that the truth about his case would come at, out. He knew that there were innocent convicts that had been exonerated. And so he had hope, right, that, that, would that he would be vindicated as well. He's even reported to have said the following, from within the jail cell, he said, I know that the situation can be righted. 
I know that there can be justice, right? And I believe that the apostles had a very similar kind of hope. Now, the initial response of the, the high priest and of the Sanhedrin to what the apostles were saying in response to the accusations was to want to kill them, right? But then Gamaliel, he, he is able to persuade them towards a different course of action. So to really understand what's going on in this scene, we, know, we need to answer a couple of questions regarding Gamaliel. Who he was and how he was able to persuade the rest of the Sanhedrin. So let's first talk about who he was. Going back to verse 33, there we read, when they heard this, this is the, the, the Sanhedrin, they were enraged and wanted to kill him. Kill them, meaning the apostles. But a Pharisee in the council named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law held in honor by all the people, stood up and gave orders to put the men outside for a little while. Now there's three things that we can notice about Gamaliel just from these couple of verses. One, he is a Pharisee in the council. Now what's important about that? I think we're aware of who the Pharisees are, right? They were this very strict uh, Jewish sect within Judaism at the time that were known for a particular way, a strict way of understanding the Mosaic law that mainly had to do with them being separate from sinners. Like even in the very name itself, it, it means something like separatist. So they separated themselves from sinners. But their role in the council was they actually held seats in the Sanhedrin, but they held the minority of seats. The Sadducees, the other big <clears throat> religious sect during the time, they held the majority of seats. But the Pharisees still had a lot of influence. And that's because they were actually more popular with the people than the Sadducees. So in some ways, Gamaliel represents the voice of the people in this situation as he's addressing the council. So that's one thing that we can say about Gamaliel. Another thing it says is that he is a teacher of the law, meaning that he taught the Old Testament and its application, like through the point of view of his Phariseeism. We learn in Acts chapter 22, verse 3, that Paul was actually a student of Gamaliel. Right? And then in addition to that, we learn from this passage, is that he is held in honor among all people. So as we said, the Pharisees are favored among the general public over and above the Sadducees, but Gamaliel is like the teacher of teachers. Right? And so if, if, if the Pharisees in general are supposed to give the voice of the people within the council of the Sanhedrin, right, he is given the voice that has the most weight. In fact, a little bit later in the Mishnah, which is not part of the Bible, but it's sort of like this codification of the oral rabbinic law, it's said of Gamaliel. So think about how, what would have to be true of Gamaliel for a Jew, for Jewish rabbis to say this. They said that when Gamaliel died, that the honor of the Torah ceased. Torah being the first five books of the Bible, meaning God's instruction. The honor of the Torah ceased and purity and asceticism died with Gamaliel. So he has that kind of weight, right? And you can see the kind of influence that he has in his ability to just stand up and say, okay, send the apostles out. I need to address all of you, right? <clears throat> so that gives us a little sense of, of who he was. But what was the nature of his address? What was his argument about? Well, he gives a word of caution, doesn't he? Going back to verse 35. There he says, men of Israel, 
take care what you are about to do with these men. Now, his, his basic argument with regard to this caution is given to us in verse 38 and verse 39, where it says, keep away from these men and let them alone. For if this plan or this undertaking is of man, it will fail. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. You might even be found opposing God. So in other words, they're saying, look, if this Jesus movement is of man, it's, it's just going to fizzle out on its own. But if this Jesus movement is from God, you are not going to be able to stop it. And so we should just let this sort of play out. Now, in, within the argument that Gamaliel makes, he gives two supporting examples of other messianic claims in the first century, okay? In verse 36 and verse 37. There we read, For before these days, Thutis rose up, claiming to be somebody, and a number of men, about 400, joined him. He was killed, and all who followed him were dispersed and came to nothing. So he gives the example of, of Thutis, right? And then notice a similar pattern to the next example that he gives. After him, Judas the Galilean rose up in the days of the census and drew away some of the people after him. That, that drawing away after can be translated something like he incited a revolt, right? Especially in this context, and you can see that interpretation represented in the Net Bible, for example. But then he goes on to say, he too perished, and all who followed him were scattered. So when we think about Thutis and we think about Judas the Galilean, right? Thutis is just one of, of many who rose to prominence right after the death of Herod the Great in, in uh, uh, 4 BC, right? Judas the Galilean was one who led a tax revolt against Rome in around AD 6, right? He says, when you look at both of those men, you can understand them within the framework of first century messianic expectations, which were varied, like according to N.T. Wright and, and others who study this time period, those expectations were varied, but they include three interrelated elements, and different groups kind of emphasize different parts of, the, you know, of these three, but if you look at the expectations in the first century with regard to the coming of the Messiah, they expected three things regarding him. That he would defeat foreign oppressors. That's one thing that he would do. That he would rebuild and, and or cleanse the temple. And that he would bring a kingdom of justice and peace. And so Thutis and Judas the Galilean were just two of many, not like hundreds, but like maybe 10 to 20, of many wannabe messianic claimants during the time period, right? But here's the thing. If you're, if you're in the first century, right, and you're a claimant, and what we see in all these claimants and in the examples that were just given is that they rise up as a claimant, they gather to themselves followers, they are brutally killed, and then those followers scatter, right? If you're in the first century and your wannabe Messiah is killed, 
you have two options. One option is to kind of go home quietly and just thank God that you were not killed also. That's one option you had. Another option that you had was to find another Messiah. The option that wasn't available to you was continuing to think that the wannabe Messiah that was killed was the Messiah. Right? Being killed was a disqualifying event for a wannabe Messiah. You understand what I'm saying? Now, now given that understanding, right, you, you can see the weight of Gamaliel's argument. Right? So did they buy it? Was he able to persuade them? Yes. And the latter part of verse 39, it says, So they took his advice. And when they called the apostles, they beat them. That's not exactly, I mean, he said, he said, um, he said let them alone. So this is a very interesting interpretation of let them alone. But they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. Now, here's another thing that we have to understand about Gamaliel's argument. It's an example of dramatic irony, meaning that the readers, they know something that the characters in the story do not know. The Jesus movement didn't fizzle out. Right? Here we are 2,000 years later talking about it, right? So every student of history then has to explain why Jesus is the exception. Right? We, we can see all the similarities right, between him and the other messianic claimants. They rise up. They gather to themselves followers. They're brutally killed, then their followers scatter, right? That's, that's what Jesus' apostles initially did. They scattered, but there's a radical difference, isn't there? Right? Jesus didn't stay dead. <laughs> that's the big difference, right? He was vindicated by his resurrection against every expectation to the contrary. Right? In, in the Jewish mind, you did not expect for an individual to rise in the middle of history. Your expectation, if you believed in the resurrection, and the Sadducees didn't, for example, but if you believed in the resurrection, you thought it would be in mass at the end of history. And here's this man who rises in the middle of history, and he's called the first fruits of the resurrection. Meaning like he's the first one to tell us that there's more to come. Now, the apostles, they believed this. They could not deny it because of what they had seen and heard. They saw the grave empty, right? They met the risen Christ in these post-resurrection appearances. And they were so certain about those experiences. If you look at 1 John chapter 1, Right, in the first couple of verses, right, it says that they held him, they touched him, they heard him. In other passages, they ate with him. Right? And they were so convinced about these experiences that they were willing to die to attest to the reality of them. Right? Now, many, many people die for things that they believe in throughout the world, throughout history. But are, you, are we supposed to believe that a group of people died for something that they knew to be false? That's a little bit harder to embrace. And so all of these things, they show the reality 
of Jesus' resurrection. Now, Gamaliel is not aware. This is why it's dramatic irony. Like, he is not aware that he's pointing forward to all of these things. But Luke records them so that when they are read in churches, right, or they're read in your house, you hear them out loud. It's being taught to you. You kind of smile. You look at each other. You kind of go like, this guy, he doesn't know what he's saying. All right, and that's part of what's going on. And the apostles knew this. The apostles, okay, the resurrection of Jesus, right, it allowed the apostles to face injustice with hope. With hope. Without having fear, without experiencing bitterness. And see, that, that same hope is held out to you today. Right, so we, we can, when we experience injustices, we can have hope that God's going to turn things around. He's going to make the situation right. Just like Lamar Johnson said, I have hope that the situation can be made right. Because now I don't know if any of you have ever experienced injustices. And, and some of us, you know, it's like, well, we weren't brought before the Supreme Court of the United States and beaten there, Right. But, and, some, and maybe some of you have experienced extreme injustices, and I don't want to minimize that, but a lot of us, for a lot of us, it's just kind of like death by a thousand paper cuts, right? At home and at work, right? It's just kind of like, why am I getting blamed for this? I am in no way involved in what happened there. Why am I getting blamed? Or why am I, being, am I not being acknowledged for this? That, that seems unfair. That seems unjust, and we experience these injustices. And see, what I want to tell you is that believing in the resurrection, putting our hope in the resurrection, actually can change our experience of those things. Right? The apostles, they looked at Jesus and they saw how God had vindicated him. And they knew on the basis of that, that they one day could be vindicated too. And so the way that they experienced these beatings and these threats was greatly changed. Those beatings and threats didn't have their intended effect, did they? Right, because they're meant to, you know, when, when you beat someone, and I hope you don't, but I mean, if you beat someone, Right? Your hope is that they're going to stop whatever it is that they were doing before that you beat them, right? That they would be afraid of more beatings, right? But the apostles don't respond in fear. And they don't even respond in bitterness. And that brings us to our second point. Belief in the death and resurrection of Jesus produces joy and boldness in the face of dishonor. If you look at verse 41, you'll see how they respond with joy. There it says, Then they left the presence of the council rejoicing. That they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. Our hearts 
are designed to find their joy in exalting Jesus. It's just, it's how we're wired, right? We're made in the image of a triune God. Jesus, he said, my, my food is to do the will of the Father, right? Like the thing that satisfies me is to, to make my Father's name great, right? And Jesus is, is the paradigm for all. He's the most human person who's ever lived, right? And our hearts are designed to find his joy in exalting Jesus, right? Our greatest desire as a Christian is to see Jesus's name be made great, through our actions and our words. But see, it's hard to do that against the backdrop of blessing. When you rejoice in God and everything is going well, it's just not that noticeable. And people are apt to think, well, the real reason why they're rejoicing is because things are going well, even if they're saying, praise God. Right, but, but when, right, you take the diamond, which is our relationship with Jesus, and you place it against the black velvet cloth of suffering with Jesus, of experiencing dishonor with Jesus, then the magnificence of Jesus' brightness shines. And the apostles, they knew that. So Jesus was stripped of his clothes, right? And he was flogged. And then he was put on a cross. And that was not just about physical pain. For the Romans, and in a shame and honor culture, it was about shaming him, dishonoring him. Both the flogging and the crucifixion are about that. And now Jesus' apostles are stripped of their clothes. And then they are flogged. And then they share in the suffering and in the dishonor of Jesus. And so what do they do? They rejoice. Not in the flogging itself, but that that mysterious kind of oneness that you feel when you suffer along with your friend. I think about the people who have the most oneness. Isn't it true that the people who experience the most oneness are the people who have suffered together? I think about my friends who have suffered along with me with regard to certain things. Our oneness is in part because of our suffering. Or if you think about people who have, have seen, uh, uh, they've, they've been on the battlefield. There's a oneness there. I, I, I read of a story of a group of missionaries once that were, they were like trapped and tortured for their faith in Jesus. They got together later to reminisce about how good those times were. Because the oneness that suffering can produce in you. And so they, they counted it joy, right? It, because they could share in that suffering with Jesus, but also because 
they looked forward with anticipation for when that would be reversed. Their dishonor would turn to honor. See, there, there's, a, there's a certain shape to the Christian life. It goes humiliation, then exaltation. It goes death, and then resurrection. Right? And the apostles are beginning to know this, and they are beginning to rejoice. Jesus said it in this way in Matthew chapter 5, verse 11, and the first part of verse 12. Jesus said, Blessed are you when others revile you, and persecute you, and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. He says something similar in Luke chapter 6. So there is joy in being dishonored for Jesus and knowing that one day, just like Jesus, we will be vindicated if we continue in following him in his suffering. So the intended effect of the beatings and the threats was meant to be fear and meant to be to stop them from preaching in Jesus' name. For goodness sakes, we keep telling you, right? But instead it produces boldness. You see how unstoppable the kingdom of God is? It's like, I don't even know of an example. Is it the Terminator? Is it the Terminator? Would he, like, is there a time when the Terminator's running and like they shoot the bullets and then his body absorbs them and then he gets stronger? This is what this seems like to me. It's like, you just can't stop these people. Right? We beat them and then they preach more. It goes on to say in verse 42, every day in the temple, and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that Christ, the Christ is Jesus. Now, the word preaching here literally means gospeling. Right? They're heralding the good news that Jesus is the risen Christ. The resurrection means that Jesus is the Christ. Now, if you look at the content of their preaching, if you, you know, throughout the book of Acts, what they have just said to the high priest in the passage that we looked at last week, what they are doing right now, what they are basically saying is, look, the resurrection of which we are witnesses proves that Jesus is the Messiah. So that means that we have to adjust what our expectations of the Messiah were. Right? They were looking for a political conqueror to defeat foreign oppressors. But the true Christ was going to defeat something way more foreign than Rome. Something foreign not just to Israel, but something foreign to God's good creation itself. Sin, death, and the devil. The Christ, the new Joshua, drives out sin, death, and the devil so that he can make the whole earth the promised land. That's a, I mean, come on. Like, what kind of story is this? Who makes up a story like this? God does. And he writes it on the pages of history and he exalts his son. They were expecting that the Messiah would rebuild and then cleanse the temple. But the true Christ, he gives his body 
the temple to be destroyed and then raises it up from the dust and becomes the cornerstone of a new temple of living stones that he cleanses from the inside out. They were expecting that the Messiah would come and bring a kingdom of justice and peace by eliminating his enemies with the sword. And instead, Jesus dies for his enemies and takes on the just penalty for our sins upon himself at the cross in order that he might create peace between us and God and us and each other. And so with the resurrection, there are adjustments that need to be made with reference to our expectations of who the Messiah was going to be. Right? And you can see it clear as day. When you, when you look at the Old Testament through the lens of the resurrection, you're like, oh, there it is. We, 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 we've been misjudging this thing the whole time. God needed to do this. How could he create a kingdom with sinners? How could, he, how could he be just if he doesn't pay for sins? How could the blood of bulls and goats pay for sins? And then in this moment, by the Spirit, oh, I see now. And it changes everything. If, see, and so the apostles because they believed in the resurrection. Right? They, could, they could face dishonor without bitterness, without fear. And they could wait for their vindication that they were sure was going to come because they saw it happen in Jesus. But sometimes it takes a long time, at least with reference to our experience. A million years from now, we're going to go, wow, that was a short amount of time that we were dishonored. But now, in the moment, you know, well, she didn't notice I made the bed. You know? Um, we, we're like, how, how, come, how come they didn't acknowledge this about me? I'm being dishonored. How, how, how can you allow this to happen, God? You know? Right now, it feels long. Lamar Johnson, he waited almost 30 years. But then this year in February, his, his ruling was overturned. And you know, one of the things that they remarked about him as he was coming out, right, the reporters were shocked at his lack of anger. And he explained to them, I'm not going to give in to my anger because that would just be, this is what he said, trading one prison cell for another prison cell. And he said, in the end, there's still a lot to be joyful about. Now, here's the thing, okay? If Lamar Johnson could be freed from that kind of bitterness, just because he knew that there were innocent convicts that were exonerated, how much more? Should, should we face our own injustices and dishonor with hope and joy and boldness because of the resurrection? But here's the problem. 
I'm not sure we believe in the resurrection. I'm not talking about if, whether or not you can sign the doctrinal statement. I, I, I am not sure to what degree I actually believe in the resurrection. Because if I believed in the resurrection, this is what it would look like. You'd have joy in the face of dishonor. You'd have hope in the face of injustice. You would continue on with boldness and without fear. Now, this is, you know, I was telling Andrew this morning, it's kind of, the whole Bible is sort of like, and Keller says this too, but it's like, it's saying like one thing. Repent and believe in the gospel is what it's saying. And in some passages, it begins from over here. Let's talk about that with reference to marriage. Let's talk about that with reference to money. Let's talk about that with, today, it's injustice. And, and there's all these different things. And you're like, oh, if you start in this hamlet, you start in this little village over here, you start in that city over there, it doesn't matter. All the roads lead to London. The gospel. All right, so the point is, you, you come to the word of God, and it's like a mirror, and it shows you, Yep, I do not believe. Now, the point would not be to, to justify yourself. Well, the problem is, is that you don't understand what... You, no, you just own that. Like, yeah, I, I'm not believing in the gospel. And you don't stay in guilt. That's not the point. The point is, I turn to you, God. Take the reality of the resurrection and plant it deep in my heart because I took my temperature this week and at the slightest infraction of injustice and I felt dishonored. It was like I threw the resurrection away. I said, God, can you plant the truth of your resurrection in my heart? Because when Jesus rises up in you, in your heart, you will be changed. And the good news is if he began a good work in you, he is faithful to complete it. Our hope is not in our resilience, not in our resolve. Our hope is in Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for Jesus. He is the greatest treasure Lord, give us a heart that is willing to sell everything to know him and to be changed by him. Lord, I, I pray that now you would, oh, come, oh, Holy Spirit, and pour yourself out on your people. Give us eyes to see the beauty of your Son and the reality of his death and of his resurrection. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.